Hello and welcome back to Storytime with Auntie Shell. Today we're going to be reading a book called The Absent-Minded Fairy, which was published in 1884 in Philadelphia. So make sure you're sat comfortably and let's begin. She came sliding down a moonbeam, in fine style, seated upon an embroidered travelling rug, just exactly as you slide downhill on a sled. There are three ways of coming here from fairyland upon a sunbeam, a moonbeam, and a rainbow. But the sunbeam is warm, the rainbow is damp, and the moonbeam, being neither, is decidedly to be preferred. She was a silly little thing, always falling into scrapes and offending people because she didn't think. But nobody had ever had so many good intentions, and so the king had changed her name from whatever it was, I really don't know that, to Dulcintentia. And her friends, finding that quite too long to say, especially when they were in a hurry, had shortened it to Dulcie. She came away in a dreadful hurry. She did most things in a hurry, because she always forgot what she had meant to do, until about the last minute but one. But this time, the hurry had another and more painful reason. She was afraid that she might accidentally meet Lord St John's work. His lordship had sent her a basket of fruit a short time before, and she had written him a pretty little note of thanks. It was chiefly crab apples, the very thing of all others which she disliked, and the next time she happened to meet him, somebody unfortunately mentioned crab apples, and she, forgetting all about his gift, exclaimed, Don't speak of them. The mere smell of one makes me ill for a week. Now, this was, of course, a dreadful exaggeration, and also, of course, his lordship's feelings were deeply hurt, and yet it never occurred to that stupid little fairy, until she was at home, and in bed, and almost half asleep, that this speech accounted for the very marked manner in which his lordship had avoided, had avoided bidding her good night. When it did, she sprang out of bed, dressed herself in mad haste, forgot that, unless she obtained a passport from the king, she would be denied entrance on her return, rushed to the moonbeam gate and slipped past the astonished gatekeeper before he could remonstrate with her. Then she stood still, dismayed. There was the moonbeam, smooth and shining, and very slippery looking. But how could she slide down it with nothing to slide upon? She would probably tumble off. A soft and pretty little travelling rug suddenly appeared, whence she could not tell, and spread itself at her feet. It's evidently meant for me, she murmured, and I must get off tonight. I can't run the risk of meeting Lord St John's work until he's had time to forget. I only hope he forgets everything as quickly as I do. I really dare not stop. There may not be a rainbow for weeks. And besides, my grandmother said she took the worst cold she ever had in her life, sliding down a rainbow, and a sunbeam just ruins the complexion. If this is anybody's, they'll stop me, of course. She fancied she heard a faint chuckling laugh, but she did not wait to listen. She hurriedly arranged the rug and started. But she'd only gone a very little distance when her fancy became a certainty. The chuckling grew louder and seemed to be close to her ear. Turning, she saw to her dismay, perched behind her upon the rug, an elf bent double with mischievous laughter. 
Now the elves, as a race, are not on friendly terms with the fairies. The gate of fairyland is closely guarded, because here they sometimes slip in or even climb over. And although they never do anything very bad, they make a good deal of trouble. No respectable fairy likes to find a bee in her bonnet, or a tadpole in her slippers, or a beetle in her pocket. But a few of the elves, fascinated with the beauty of fairyland, and fairies, have sworn allegiance to the king and are his trusty servants. Their quick wit and keen sense of fun make them valuable messengers and servants, and so it was a friendly elf who stood behind Dulcie on the rug. But this at first she did not know, and it was with a trembling voice, although she tried to be very dignified and commanding, that she said to the elf, Leave me, I I prefer to be alone. Leave her, chuckled the elf, with a droll imitation of her voice and manner, when it's my best rug she's sliding on. And if I do leave her, she will come down with a bang and mayhap break all her pretty little bones. No, my lady. And although he still grinned, his voice was kind and pleasant. I'm not a hostile, I'm a friendly. And when I saw you fly out of the gate without showing your passport or asking for a rug, I flew after you, for I didn't suppose you were rash enough to wish to leave fairyland for good and all. And I knew if I did not make an arrangement to meet you, you'd never be able to get back in again. Oh, sighed Dulcie, swinging her tiny hands. That's just exactly like me. I never once thought of a passport, and I only wished to stay away till, well, for a little while. Till his lordship forgets about the crab apples, chuckled the elf, wagging his head. That won't be long. He's losing his memory, poor dear old nobleman. How did you know? asked Dulcie mistrustfully. But I don't care, she added. You certainly are a friendly elf, or you'd not have lent me your rug. So now please tell me how I can get back, and how I can know when his lordship has forgotten, and how I can make the human people like me. Anything else? asked the elf gravely. We'll take them one at a time. You can get back by signalling for me to come to you, my lady. See here? And he took off his little green pointed cap in which a grey cock's feather waved and pulled from between the cap and its lining a tiny silver whistle. If you ever want me, he said, blow this once. If you wish to come back, blow twice and I'll bring the rug. Now, I don't know whether it will be safe. It can do strange things, this whistle can. Shall I tell you, and I will keep it straight in your head, my lady? It's a power, but if you forget, feathers and fur, what scrapes you'll get into. And he laughed until he nearly fell on the rug. Oh, please tell me, said Dulcie eagerly. I'll remember, and it is so nice to be powerful, and I'll make so many friends, and indeed and truly. I'll not lose it. You shall have it back all safe when you bring me home. I've a notion to do it, said the elf, talking to himself more than the fairy. She can always get away. If I leave her the rug, and I don't care so immensely for these human people anyhow, and if she does make mistakes, after all, I've told her all straight. Is that my fault? Oh no, not at all. See here, my lady, it hangs from a little silver chain. Put the chain around your neck and never take it off till you see me again. Now listen, if anything ever happens, 
to make you wish to escape from these humans and you haven't your rug with you, blow this way, one long and one short note, and everybody will stand on its head. And then, when you're safe, blow one short and one long, and that will right side them up again. And if, for any reason, you should take a notion to change a person into an animal, or a bird, or a tree, or a flower, or anything you like, blow this way, one loud and one low note, and make your wish, and it's done. And if you want to make yourself, or anybody, or anything invisible, blow this way, two notes as softly as you can, and to reverse the charm, two as loudly as you can, wish, and it's done. Can you remember? I think I can, said Dulcie hesitatingly. But if you don't mind, perhaps it would be safer for you to go over it once more. It's a little bit confusing. So the elf patiently went over it once more, and then she was sure she had it all right, and by that time the long journey down the moonbeam was accomplished, and the elf, stepping nimbly to one side, caught the edge of the rug and drew it after him, just in time to prevent a bump. You did that beautifully, said Dulcie, smiling up in his face. And indeed, you've done everything beautifully. And I wish I could do something for you. Must you go back? I'm afraid I shall be a little lonesome just at first. I must go back, my lady, said the elf, bowing low, and giving a chuckle that was more than half a sigh. But I will come, if you need me, and when you return, as you must, you know, at the end of three months, if you really wish to do something for me, Oh, I didn't tell you about the rug. It has a thread of the magic carpet twisted through it, and it'll take you anywhere. You've only got to stand on it and say where. Good night, goodbye, and good luck. And he was gone before the fairy knew he was going. The little creature stood still a moment, bewildered. It was all so strange. The moonlight, falling on the grimy old earth, made it look almost like fairyland, but trees and houses and roads and bridges were so terribly large. Now what shall I do first, she said to herself. Oh, I know, that first little sunflower fairy came home the other day, and I heard her say how she'd been seeing the elephant, so I'll see that anyhow. Standing on the rug, she said gravely, I wish to go to the nearest elephant. Now, she had not the remotest idea what an elephant was, so you may imagine her surprise when, in half a second, she found herself in a vast building full of people and the crashing noise of a band. A great space in the centre was covered with sawdust, and in this space some huge elephants were solemnly performing their various tricks. Other animals were in cages around the ring, and their roaring mingled with that of the band. But she was not frightened. She had never known what fear, the fear of cruelty or pain, was. And so, from her perch on the chandelier, where her rug had landed, she surveyed the performance with great interest. But I wonder which is the elephant, she said aloud to herself. Can it be that very droll thing, like a very large elf, with the red spots all over him? No, that's the clown, said the nearest elephant, who had overheard her. We're the elephants, my dear, and I wish to goodness we were anything else. These people who come here to laugh at us little know the life we lead, or what is done to us to make us learn our tricks. Now, you must know that fairies can understand all languages, 
even those of beasts and birds and insects. So you really are the elephant, said Dulcie, very much pleased. I don't wonder people go to see you. There's so much of you to see. But I'm dreadfully sorry you are uncomfortable. And I wouldn't stand it if I were you, she said, she added, brightening up. Why don't you just tread on anybody who teases you, or hit him with your beautiful long waving nose? A brother of mine tried that last week, groaned the poor elephant, and this was what happened. First they chained him, then they starved him, then they shot him. Ow! He said ow because, in talking to the fairy, he'd forgotten to take his part in the performance and was reminded by a poke from a sharp piece of iron at the end of a stick. Dolsty said, ow, too, for sympathy, and then added hurriedly, I can do the most wonderful things. I have a whistle, and I can whistle all these people upside down, and whistle you into a bird, or a fish, or anything you like. Shall I? Shall you, said the elephant. I should rather think you should. Just put this whole circus full of grinning idiots upside down first, and then change us. All of us, yes, I won't be spiteful. If the lion does look down on us, change us all into beautiful free birds. Dulcie thought intently for a moment. She did not wish to make a mistake, but she was very much excited. She waved her hand over the wand, over the elephants, and other animals, saying, This is for these and blew a long and a short note. Then, without stopping to look, she waved it towards the audience, saying, And this is for those, and blew one loud and one low, adding as she finished, Oh, I forgot, birds. Imagine her consternation when the two or three thousand people who made the audience suddenly rose, whirling into the air, ducks and geese, Sparrows, larks, doves, crows, blackbirds, birds of every sort and description dashing frantically about, uttering discordant notes. While in the ring, and in the cages, every animal, including the unfortunate clown and ringmaster, stood upon its head with feet waving wildly in the air. For a few moments, Dulcie's consternation was so great that she was powerless to think. The beasts were angrily reproaching her and vainly trying to regain their feet. The noise made by the birds was deafening. Her first wild impulse was to sail away on her carpet and leave them to their fate, but she fought this down. It would be too horribly mean. Summoning all her courage, she sounded the whistle. Now loud, now low. Long and short, short and long for she knew that in the terrible confusion it would be vain to try to recall the elf's instructions and at last to her inexpressible relief the birds suddenly flopped into the seats and were people again and the distressed beasts came right side up a few more trials and the beasts were changed to stately white swans which dashing against a partly opened window pushed it wide and made their way out Full of excitement, the fairy followed to see what would become of them. Those which had been elephants flew but a short distance, heavily and painfully, and then settled down, one on a large tree, another on the roof of a house, and the rest 
upon the ground. Dulcie flew up to the one upon the roof, saying breathlessly, You'd better fly away. Somebody might catch you here. I can't, said the swan faintly. I suppose I look like a bird, but I feel exactly like an elephant, and my wings would have to be two or three dozen times bigger to make me able to fly any distance. Could you do that, dear fairy? I might try, said Dulcie, hopefully. He, the elf who gave me this whistle, said it was very powerful, so I dare say I can make your wings as big as you like. Now we'll wish, now we'll all wish, you tell them I can't make them here, and then I'll blow till I get it right. So the swan elephant on the roof raised his voice and explained to the others that they were all to wish for wings large enough to enable them to fly easily. And then Dulcie began to whistle. But alas, after trying a variety of notes, out came one low and one loud note, and behold, the swans were elephants again. It was all very well for the ones on the ground, but the poor fellow in the tree, which fortunately was not a tall tree, came down with a crash while the roof strained. The fairy tried once more, and they ended up as beetles. Though no matter what she tried, she couldn't turn them back. The beetles agreed to stay as they were. To be sure, they felt horribly heavy and could not get used to taking up so little room, but they felt so safe down on the ground and able to slip out of sight that they thought they had better not change again. We don't doubt your good intentions, dear fairy, said the one who'd been on the roof, but you seem a little confused in your head, so we'll not take any more risks, and we're very much obliged to you. Nobody will poke us with sharp sticks down here. So they are tumbling contentedly about to this day, and, but perhaps you've seen a tumblebug. The other beasts, not being so heavy, had managed to fly away and, going by easy stages, reached a delightful desert island and went to housekeeping secure from all their enemies. When the whole thing was over, day was beginning to break and the poor little fairy, perfectly exhausted, cast about in her mind for a place where she might safely rest and sleep. There must be a human king somewhere, she mused drowsily, and he must have a palace that would be safest, of course. I wish I were in a palace. That's it for part one. Don't forget to come and join us next time in part two. Snuggle down and stay safe. Goodbye.